If you would be taking out your Bibles and turning to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, then you might want to put a marker there as we'll be spending our time in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There are several sermons recorded for us in Scripture. And no sermon is probably more familiar to us than the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in the book of Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7. But the sermon itself there, it's familiar, very well familiar to us, is focusing on the gospel of the kingdom. If you back into chapter 4 and into verse 23, it says, And Jesus was going throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And so there it talks about him preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then in verse 24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill and suffering various diseases and pains. And in verse 25, it says, And large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and far beyond the Jordan. And in verse 1, that's when Jesus sees the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Beginning of verse 2 there of Matthew chapter 5, and going through chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon divides itself into three major sections. The first 16 verses of chapter 1, or chapter 5, the first of the chapters on the Sermon on the Mount, is dealing with citizens in the kingdom. Beginning at verse 2 of that text and going down through verse 12, he talks about the character of those citizens. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And on down through verse 12. Then beginning at verse 13 through 16, he gives about the influence of the citizens. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's found in 13 through 16 of chapter 5. He then beginning at verse 17 of chapter 5 and going through verse 12 of chapter 7 is dealing with the righteousness in the kingdom. He's talked about citizens in the kingdom in one through six, uh, chapter 5, 1 to 16. Now beginning at verse 17 and going through chapter 7 and in verse 12, he deals with the righteousness in the kingdom. Remember, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is the righteousness in the kingdom. And then beginning at verse 13 of chapter 7 and going through the end of the chapter is him extending the invitation and then you also have there the response of the people. But I want us to focus on the second section this evening, this righteousness in the kingdom. Let's spend some time and move through this part of the text in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, and going through chapter 7 and in verse 12, and talk about the righteousness in the kingdom. What is it in order to be one that is righteous, who's living a righteous life, one that is a citizen in this kingdom, what does that require? Of us. And beginning at verse 17 and going through the uh, chapter 7 and in verse 12, we'll see that before us. Now, this section on the righteousness in the kingdom subdivides itself down into three sections. The first of those is that the righteousness in the kingdom must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. In verses 17 through 19, we won't spend any time there. But 17 through 19, Jesus is making the point about he's come to fulfill the law. So this old law, what he's telling them, he's not abolishing the old law, but fulfilling it in 17, 18, and 19. 
But in verse 20, he makes this statement. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now before we move on beginning at verse 21, let's understand something. Jesus is not saying here that you need to be comparing your righteousness to the scribes and Pharisees, and as long as you're a little bit better than them, you're okay. That's how sometimes we want to view righteousness. Well, I'm doing better than so-and-so is. Somebody asks you, tries to correct something you're doing wrong. Well, so-and-so over there is, and we try and compare ourselves as long as we're just a little more righteous than somebody else. The point Jesus is making here is, here's the way the scribes and the Pharisees live, but your living has got to be different than that of the scribes and Pharisees. See, the scribes and the Pharisees are those that you're perceiving to be righteous. We'll see that as he moves through, that you'll refer to them as hypocrites. But your righteousness is, is more than what they are doing. Here's what it is, beginning at verse 21. The first of those is that you're in this kingdom, the righteousness required in the kingdom that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you do not say raka to your brother. Look at 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. Now that's how the scribes and the Pharisees were what the scribes and Pharisees were living by. You see, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder. That's how the scribes and Pharisees would live. Don't murder. And that's what the people understand. We don't need to murder. But listen to what Jesus tells them in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees are over here saying, don't murder. Absolutely that's true. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you not only don't murder, don't hate your brother, don't call him fool, don't say Raka to your brother, you see. It's much more than just simply not murdering. That's what the scribes and Pharisees do. What you're doing exceeds that. You don't be angry with your brother. You don't call your brother fool. That's exceeding what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing in this text. So it's not just murder, but you're not saying raka to your brother. Look at verse 23. Not only that, you make sure that you have asked for forgiveness and deal with the sin in your life before going to offer worship. It's still in the context of what he's saying in 21 and 22, it's still in the same paragraph, but he says in verse 23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. <clears throat> Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. But you think about what he's saying in 23 and 24. Here you have somebody, and this is how the scribes and the Pharisees would do this. You go to offer your sacrifice to God. You're headed to offer your worship to God. And as you're headed to the sacrifice, you remember that your brother over here has something against you. That there's something you need to deal with. There's something between you and him. He's got something against you. You don't go offer your sacrifice and hope you forget. You don't go offer your sacrifice and then come to your brother. You come first to the brother before you can go and offer worship to God. 
You make sure that the problems between you and others, that whatever they have against you is dealt with first. That's more than the religious leaders would do. You make sure that you're dealing with that before you try and offer up your worship to God. Look what he says then in verse 27. He's comparing everything we're listening here, by the way, is a comparison between what he says to them and something they were told. Look at verse 27. Something they've heard. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. That's what the religious leaders would tell you. You ask the scribes and the Pharisees, do not commit adultery. That's what everybody would tell you. You don't need to commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But if your eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So you see, he says here, you've heard don't commit adultery. But now others would think, oh, it's okay as long as you come to everything short of that. Jesus, I'm telling you, not only don't commit adultery, you don't look at a woman to lust after her in your heart. See, that's exceeding what the religious leaders would do, what the religious leaders would tell you to do. They're saying, don't commit adultery, but everything up to that, they would, that they would, might not be a problem for them. Jesus says, I'm telling you, do not look at a woman to lust, with her, uh, to lust after her in your heart. The righteousness in the kingdom says, do not lust. That's required. That's required to live a righteous life. Do not lust at, look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, verse 28. Not only that, verse 31 and 32, understand this, there's but one cause for divorce. Look at what he says in 31. Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he comes here in 31 and says, you've heard about the certificate of divorce, that whoever wants to divorce his wife to send her away with a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, I say to you, there's one cause, and that's the cause of sexual immorality or fornication. He says, I'm telling you, there's one cause, that everyone who divorces his wife, look at 32, except for the reason of sexual immorality, that there's only one cause. We're mostly familiar with Matthew 19 and in verse 9, but Matthew 5, 32 says the same thing. There's one cause for divorce, and that's the cause of fornication. And if somebody divorces their wife except for that cause, they make her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, according to verse 32. So not only does he say, you don't just give a certificate of divorce, there's only one cause for divorce, and that's the cause of fornication. Look at verse 33 through 37. Righteousness in the kingdom requires us being somebody that keeps our word. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. So the ancients tell you don't make false vows. If you make a vow, you need to keep that vow. Now, if it's not a vow, it's not important that you keep that. You keep your vows. Don't make a false one. So if you make the vow, that's important. But this is what they're being told. Anything short of that, not keeping the vow is okay. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 34. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of the evil one. See, there are those that would say, well, as long as you don't make a vow, you don't have to keep that. But if you make a vow, don't make a false one. Once you make that vow, you've got to keep it. Jesus says, I'm telling you, don't make the vow. Your word is enough. You say, yes, you're going to do it, you're going to do it. If you say, no, you won't, then you won't. Your word is enough. You need to keep your word. Let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. See, righteousness in the kingdom demands that we are people that are honest and truthful. We do what we say we're going to do. That's what he's requiring here of us in Matthew chapter 5. He then, beginning at verse 38, talks about going the extra mile. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is, if somebody does something to you, you can retaliate and respond. That's what you've heard. You've heard that you can respond. That's the eye for the eye or the tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, Jesus is not saying here in 39 through 42 to literally, if somebody slaps you, turn and say, hey, you've missed the other, you need to slap the other cheek as well. If they really steal your tunic, here, have the garment while you're at it. What he's dealing with here is the righteousness in the kingdom demands that we are not those that retaliate. So you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is, you've heard that you can retaliate, you can respond. The righteousness in the kingdom, those that are citizens in the kingdom, to, in order to be righteous, they are not those that retaliate or respond when evil is done to them. They're not the kind of person that if you take their tunic, well, they're going to turn around and go steal yours from you. They'd, they would give up their garment rather than go steal your tunic. See, this is not a re retaliation. And when somebody slaps you on the right on, on the cheek, you don't you don't turn around and slap them back. Rather, you would take a slap on your other cheek than respond and retaliate. The righteousness in the kingdom is you are not those that retaliate or respond when evil is done to you. So that's going the extra mile. You're not the kind of person that retaliates when evil is done to you. And look at verse 43 now. We're moving through this rather quickly. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43 through 48, you need to love your enemy. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and hate your, or love your brother and hate your enemy. So there's those that you need to love your neighbor, but as long as you can hate your enemy, that's okay. As long as you hate your enemy. But I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, he's saying here, you've heard that you can love your neighbor but hate your enemy. He says, I'm telling you, you, can't, you need to love your enemies. You pray for those that persecute you. By the way, this is connects back to what was just said a second ago. You see... When it talks about going this extra mile, and if they slap you on the right cheek, you turn the other also, that's not a retaliatory system. Sometimes we can retaliate by when somebody hates us, hating them back. Sometimes we can re retaliate when somebody hates us, hoping that something ill befalls them. 
But instead, he says, you love them, you pray for them. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see, if you're over here and you're saying, I love my neighbor over here, I love those that love me. But then here's my enemies over here that hate me, and so I hate them back. What more are you doing than others? You see, in order to be citizens in the kingdom, being citizens in this kingdom requires us being separate and apart. We're, We're holy people. But what good does it do if I hate my enemy and love those that love me? Because you can go find somebody else that does the same. Even the tax collector, do not even the tax collectors, verse 46, do the same? It's an implied yes, they do. If somebody, if somebody loves you, you'll love them back. That's typically the way it works. If somebody hates you, people hate them back. The world is that way. What more are you doing than others? As he says in verse 47... If we hate those that hate us and love only those that love us. But you love those that are your enemy. You love those that hate you. You pray for them. You see, that's what we need to do. By the way, here's something important. So that you may be sons, verse 45, of your Father who is in heaven. For he calls his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He says in verse 48, that you, therefore you be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. Because we're demanded to be like God and we're sons of our Father in heaven. I want you to think about this for a second. If he loved only those that loved him, would he have sent the Son? If the Father loved only those that loved him and the Son loved only those that loved him, would the Son have died for us? The answer is no. You see, but we are supposed to be reflecting that. We are, his, we are sons of our Father in heaven. And as we're reflecting that, we love those that hate us. Remember what Romans points out, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. In Romans chapter 5. And we love those that are our enemies, just as we were loved by our Heavenly Father when we were enemies. But you see, that's what he deals with exceeding the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. He says, you do not say rocket to your brother. Not only do you not murder. By the way, notice as he contrasts them here, you've heard that it was said. And he talks about what they're told. And he says, I say to you, he's contrasting, here's what others are doing. And here's what I'm saying to you. You don't say rocket to your brother. Not only do you not murder, but you don't hate and you're not angry with and you don't call them fools. Not, and and you, you ask for forgiveness before you go worship. You don't wait till you're done or hope that they forget. You ask for forgiveness first. Deal with the problem first. Not only do you not commit adultery, but you do not lust. Not only, are you, you, you know there's one cause for divorce, not just give a certificate and send them away. You don't make vows by heaven or earth or by Jerusalem, but instead you understand your word is to be enough. You don't retaliate, but you're willing to go the extra mile when somebody does something evil to you. And you love your enemies and love those that hate you, not just love those that love you. When you're doing that, that's the righteousness that's exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. You see, they do the first half of that. When he makes the statements like, you have heard that it was said, that's what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. But then he says, here's what's demanded of you. That's something that exceeds what they are doing. 
That's how your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees. So righteousness in the kingdom is first righteousness that must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But not only that, this righteousness in the kingdom, he then shifts into chapter 6, and for the entirety of chapter 6 deals with this righteousness in the kingdom. Here's how that responds in the relationship to God. So look at chapter 6 with me. That righteousness in the kingdom, here's that right, the, the one that is righteous in the kingdom, here's their relationship to God. <clears throat> Look at verse 1 through verse 6. Do not be righteous to be seen, number one. Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Therefore when you give to the poor... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men. Truly, I say, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He's contrasting here in 1 to 6 that here's how the scribes and Pharisees are living. By the way, while he's dealing with the relationship to God in sincere worship and in sincere service to him in this text, he's still contrasting that in the early part of chapter 6 with the way the scribes and the Pharisees are living. And as he's dealing with that here in this text, here are those, here are the scribes and Pharisees, here are all those people that when they come and offer their worship to God, if they're going to get, or when they're going to help those that are in need, here I'm helping somebody in need sound the trumpet, let everybody know I'm giving them something. Here I am praying, I'm going to pray on the street corner so everybody sees it. And that's how those of the, the, the religious leaders of that day were acting. But Jesus is telling them that I'm telling you what you need to do is do it in secret. When you help somebody, do not let the left hand know what the right hand did. When you pray, go into your inner room and pray in secret. You see, the reason you're doing this is because you're not serving God for the praise you receive from men. See, that's what the religious leaders are doing. People will talk about them, oh, how righteous they are. How righteous are the scribes, the Pharisees. How righteous these people are, because here they are offering service to God. Here they are helping those that are in need. They're very generous. They're very kind. Here they are praying on the street corners. They're very religious people. You see, what they're receiving is the price of man. But they're not offering sincerely this worship sincerely to God. Instead, you need to be the person that when you give and you help, you give out a sincerity. You don't let the left hand know what the right hand did. When you're over here praying, you're praying in the inner room because it's sincere in nature and you don't care about receiving the praises of men for what you did. That's what he's dealing with here in 1 to 6. You're not doing your, these righteous deeds to be seen by others. Nor are you, 7 to 15, praying with meaningless repetition. Look at verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, in verse 7 and 8 he says, Don't be like the Gentiles that are praying with their me meaningless repetitions. 
Now let's understand this here. Jesus is not condemning in verse 7 repetition in prayer. Remember on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he prayed the same prayer three times. He's not condemning repetition in prayer. There's a very important word there, and that is this meaningless repetition. The prayers they're offering are more for the use of, the, of a bunch of words and more for the fact that it sounds good than out of sincere service to, than out of sincere service to God. It's meaningless. It's empty repetition. It's vain. There's no point to it. It's repetition for the sake of repetition. It's the use of many words just to say you use many words. But the use of many words does not have, have this direct impact on, on the prayer itself. I want you to think about this. There are many times in Scripture in which somebody offered prayer to God and the prayer may be very short. Think about Nehemiah. Think about Nehemiah. And we don't have recorded all that's said there, but as he comes before the king and the king can tell that he is distraught and it says that he prayed to God. We don't know what all that entitled, but here's what I do know. When the king asked this question, Nehemiah didn't have time to say, hang on king, give me just a second, and then go pray a 15-minute prayer. That would have been rather short and rather quick. But you see, that prayer holds power because it had meaning and was offered sincerely. Versus these over here that are talked about in, in Matthew chapter 6 that offer many words, but it's just meaningless or empty repetition. And then Jesus in verse 9 gives us the what's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but better referred to as the model prayer. Where he says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So as he comes through and he prays here in this model prayer, uh, there's a couple things we need to notice. Number one, remember this, we've already been talking about the use of many words and meaningless repetition. This model prayer the Lord gives here is rather short. This is not a very long, lengthy prayer that he says, here's how you need to pray, and he gave them a very long prayer. This is rather short. This is a rather short prayer. But you see, the prayer was offered since... The prayer that he gave them as this model here is, the, is when they're offering it sincerely to God. That's when there's power in prayer. It's not the use of many words, which, by the way, being very short, would contrast what he's just said about the use of many words and meaningless repetition. But it's about the sincerity behind the prayer and the sincerity behind the worship offered to God. That's really what he's hitting on here in this early part of chapter 6, is about the sincerity. It's the sincerity that you're not doing or needs to be seen. It's sincerity in that you're not just using many words and meaningless repetition just so it sounds good, but it's sincere service to God. So I do want to notice for just a second 14 and 15. 14 and 15, we'll come back and finish dealing with this sincerity here in just a moment in verse 16 through 18. But 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Well, it seems like a sudden shift here. Jesus is dealing with service to God, and then he shifts real quick to deal with forgiveness, and he shifts right back to deal with, 
with service to God again. He's, he's adding a clarification to something he said in that model prayer. He's not quickly shifting thoughts. He's dealing with something in this model prayer. He said in verse 12 to pray as, um, as, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He then comes in 14 and 15 and says that when we forgive others, we'll then be forgiven. But if we're not willing to forgive, we will not be forgiven. That's a clarification of what he said in verse 12. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. We're forgiven if we forgive. We're willing to forgive. If we're not willing to forgive, we will not be forgiven. He's adding clarification here to that in 14 and 15. By the way, I know of the importance of this, this discussion of forgiveness. It is the only part of the model prayer in which the Lord returns to talk to or talk more about before he moves on. He comes back to talk about forgiveness again in 14 and 15 before moving on in the text. He then comes in 16 to 18 and says, Do not fast to be seen. Now, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance that then they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. So here you have those that are being hypocritical. They're fasting, but they, they put on the gloomy face, and you, you, you see them over there, and you're wondering what's wrong, and you ask them. These would be the kind of people you walk up and go, what's wrong? And they'd be, I'm in the middle of fasting. And you would just see the gloomy face and you would automatically know something was wrong and then you would ask. And when you asked, they could tell you what they were doing. Look at what he says over in verse 17. But you, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. By your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, you're not seeking praise of men. You're not seeking for others to see what you're doing to God. You instead, you anoint your head and wash your face so that it is not noticed by other people. When you're seeking for others to see what is going on, when you're seeking for others to, to see your worship, then you're wanting to put on a show more than truly offer sincere worship to God. This is about sincere service to God. You're sincere in that you don't do your deeds to be seen. Whether that's up here with prayer and giving in 1 to 6, helping those in need or praying to God, you're sincere because you don't use just meaningless or empty repetition down here, but instead it's sincere prayer to God. And when you're fasting, you're not fasting in hopes to be seen by others with that long gloomy face, but instead you wash your face and anoint your head so others do not know, and instead it's sincere service to God. We're now getting into the part that we're probably most familiar with of this section, and that is 19 through the end of the text. In 19 through 21, he talks about storing up treasures in heaven in 19, 20, and 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, you need to have your focus on the right place. You need to have your focus on eternity, storing up treasures in heaven, rather than being the kind of person that's focused on storing up earthly treasures, storing up wealth on this earth, storing up things for us in the here and the now. You see, when we're the person of earth, uh, that is storing up treasures on earth, then our focus is not going to be on what it needs to be, and that is just not focused on eternity. When we're focused on the here and the now, we'll not be in the proper mindset that we need to be in our service to God because we'll be distracted by the things of this life. 
But if we are the person of verse 20 who's storing up treasures in heaven, then our heart is focused on eternity and our heart is focused on service to God. You see, in your relationship to God, you need to be focused on Him and not on the things of this earth. You need to be focused on on Him and service to Him and spending eternity with Him rather than how you can make your next million dollars. You need to be concerned with service to God and not about how to accumulate wealth. Look at 22 and 23. This is all tying together. We're tying 19 here through 24 together as we move through. He says in verse 20, The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I want you to notice something in 19 through 24 real quick. We haven't got to 24 yet, but we're going to be there in just a second. He uses three sets of two things. There are two places you can set your heart. You, or you can store your treasures. You can store your treasures on earth. You can store your treasures in heaven. That's the first pair. The second is, your eye could be full of light and clear, or your eye could be bad and full of darkness. In verse 22 and 23. And you have two options as to who you're going to serve. That's the third and final pair. You can serve God or you can serve wealth. You have two choices. That helps us in understanding 22 and 23, as 22 and 23 is dealing with having that proper mindset. The person whose eye is clear is the person whose mind is focused on what it needs to be. The person whose eye is clear is the person who's trying to store up treasures in heaven rather than store up treasures on earth. The person whose eye is clear is the one who's focused on eternity and not the here and the now. That's what he's dealing with in the immediate context. On the other hand, the person whose eye is bad and whose body is full of darkness is the person who's more focused on the here and the now. They're not seeing clearly because they're focused on the short term versus looking ahead to the long term. The one that clearly sees the future that is ahead The one whose eye is bad only sees the here and the now, and they're not focused on eternity. You could say the person whose eye is bad is the person that is short-sighted and is is focused on what is directly in front of them versus being able to look out and see ahead. And so we need to make sure that we're allowing in this good and that our eye is clearly focused to focus on the good and the focus on eternity rather than just focusing on the temporal things that are right before us rather than being short-sighted. Now look at verse 24. Here's the third and final set of two. You, the, you can serve only one of two masters. Or you can serve only one master. No one can serve two masters. Verse 24. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Again, there's two choices. You can serve God or you can serve wealth, but you cannot serve both. So we need to make sure that we are focusing on serving the Lord and not on serving wealth. We need to make sure we're focused on serving God and not focused on service to the things that are in the here and the now. I want you to notice verse 20 now. Or 25 rather. 25 through 30 should be 34, not 33. Is a section that may be the most familiar to us in this text, and that is where he talks about not worrying, and in verse 33, seeking first the kingdom of God. Don't you notice the context, though? For this reason I say to you, verse 25, 
Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat and what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's pointing out in this text that for this reason, it seems to be connected back to 24, you can serve only one of two masters. For this reason, do not worry about the here and the now. You see, oftentimes we consider those that are earthly in nature, those that are, that, that are storing up treasures in the here and the now, those that are just simply focused on accumulating things for the here and now. Those that are simply focused on the accumulation of wealth or they're focused on just temporal things. And, and so those storing up treasures on earth is how we often view it, are those that are the ones trying to make the next million dollars and they're just doing whatever they can to accumulate more and more and the one that's focused on heaven is the one that's not. But the one whose treasures are in heaven is the one not even, that's not worried about this life either. It is possible, it is possible, and verse 25 points this out, it is possible for somebody to serve mammon or wealth. It is possible for somebody to store up treasures on earth and not be focused on making their next million dollars, not be focused on accumulating more and more. That is, somebody can be accumulating treasures on earth by worrying and focusing on the problems of this earth by worrying and focusing on the things of the here and now to the point they become more important than the service to God. See if we can't see that through the text. Look again at verse 25. For this reason I say to you, that is what he's just said in 19, 20, and 21, and so on through to verse 24. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Or who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lily of the fields grow, and they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not be worried then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So you see, don't be focused on the here and the now. First of all, worrying about the here and the now, worrying about all these things is not going to do you any good. But God's going to provide for you. So don't you be worried about all of this. He said that this is the things in verse 32 that the Gentiles seek. But your father knows that you need all these things. I think verse 33 is the key, not just to this chapter, but I think verse 33 is really the key to the entirety of this sermon. When he says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I want you to think about this for just a second. What is required of us seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, why don't you go back and think about chapter 5 for just a second. 
That's when we're the kind of person that loves our enemies, that's willing to go the extra mile, whose word can be trusted. We're the kind of person that's putting what God has told us to do above all else. And then when that's what's taking place, then we're focused on what God is saying. We're focused on eternity and being with Him and not on the here and the now. And when we're focused on that and focused on pleasing God and desiring to be with Him for all of eternity then we're not going to worry about the things of this life because we know that if we're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that all those things will be added to us. And so verse 34, he says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, you need to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You seek first to, to be with the Lord forever. You seek to do His will and what He has told you to do. And don't worry about the here and the now God will provide and take care of you if you will serve Him and put Him first. And so that's what we see about our relationship to God. The relationship to God needs to be a relationship that we're not simply doing these righteous deeds to be seen. We're just simply praying with meaningless repetition just because of the many words that are used. And we're not simply fasting to be seen. But instead, our relationship to, to God demands that we store up treasures in heaven and we're focused on being with Him for eternity and not on the here and the now. It demands that we're letting, focusing only on the good and focusing and looking ahead versus focusing on the here and the now. It demands that we serve one master, and that is we serve God and not wealth. And it demands that we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and we're not worried about the here and the now. We're not worried about our life. That's what righteousness in the kingdom demands when it comes to our relationship to God. Now, not only does it... Does this, does this text tell us that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, as we saw in chapter 5? Not only does it tell us here in, in chapter 6 about our relationship to God, but it tells us in chapter 7 about our relationship to our fellow man. A couple of points here in chapter 7. Number one, he says in your relationship to fellow man, do not judge hypocritically, 1 to 6. Now, here's something we need to understand. There are many people who know nothing about the Bible outside of a couple of verses that can tell you what Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. So people will tell you when you say something to them about they need to make a change, ah, you know what Matthew 7 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. Let's take a look at the verse in its context. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, verse 1, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw out pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their, foot, their feet and turn and tear you to pieces." So notice what he says here. He does not say never to deal with the speck in the brother's eye. That's what a lot of people want to, want to come to this passage to deal with is don't deal with the speck in the brother's eye. Here's what he tells us to do. Here you, you can imagine this illustration. You've got this man over here who's got a log or a beam sticking out of his eye. And he sees somebody over here that's got a speck in his eye. And he's, oh, let me help you with that. 
Well, he's trying to get the speck out of this man's eye when he's got an entire log or a beam coming out of his eye. She just was a way of illustration. Can you imagine having a man that you find out is caught in adultery? Here's a man in adultery over here, but he wants to help this man over here that's been forsaking the assembly. Well, let me help you out. You need to be at the assembly every service, but, I'm over, but this man's over here at the same time in an adulterous relationship. See, he needs to, this man needs to be corrected over here. That's not the problem. The problem is this man over here has a problem of his own he needs to deal with first before he tries to correct his brother. Here's the man over here called an adulterer and he's trying to tell this man over here that he's missed too many services. You see, you need to deal first with the log in your own eye. Then in verse 5, you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now let's say this man over here has dealt with this problem of adultery that he's in. Now, he may need to say something to that brother over there that's not been attending services he needs to. But you see, first he dealt with the log in his own eye. He's not being hypocritical anymore. He's not judging somebody or trying to correct somebody that's got a problem in their life when he's got a problem in his own life that he needs to deal with. It's not judging hypocritically as dealt with in this text. He also deals with treating others as you would be treated. We're very well familiar with verse 12, but I want us to notice the text itself around it. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him, uh, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil, know how to give good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. I want us to notice verse 7 through 11 for just a second before we get into verse 12. He talks about asking it will be given, seeking you will find, knocking the door will be opened, and he talks about how we as men know how to give good gifts. What man is there who would give to his son a loaf or a stone when he asked for a loaf of bread? Or would give him a serpent when he asked for a fish? And the point is in verse 11, that if us being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give what is good to those who ask Him? That is, the Lord has given what is good to us. This is, by the way, verse 12 this is very important for the context of verse 12. The Lord has given to you what you have needed. The Lord has taken care of you. The Lord has given you good gifts. Therefore, in verse 12, whatever you want somebody else to do to you, you do to them. Just as the Lord has done good to you, you're reflecting that in the way that you live in treating others by the golden rule. You're reflecting that by doing to others what you would have them do to you. That's reflecting the love that the Father has shown for us. And that seems to, that's the point he's making here in this context as he talks about how, how the Lord has given us what is good or to those who ask of Him. And so when others need something for us, when others are there asking for help from us, we do to them and treat them as we ourselves would want to be treated. That's what righteousness in the kingdom demands. And so that's what we, what really this entire, this entire section, really the heart of Jesus' sermon here, 
is dealing with is righteousness in the kingdom. And that's what we've seen this evening as we've gone through is this righteousness in the kingdom. We need to draw some conclusions. And then the lesson will be yours. Here's what we need to understand. We, when we have obeyed the gospel, are citizens in this very kingdom that is talked about. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. When we obey the gospel, we're citizens in this kingdom. And so we must be righteous like our Lord described here. We live righteously just as He has said in this text that we need to live. That is, it's important for us to display that righteousness, to live it out in our everyday lives. That is, our righteousness, as is talked about here, has got to be greater or exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what it demands of us. But here's what that means. That means that we're being what we ought in our, in our marriage relationships, in our home relationships. That's why he deals with not only not committing adultery, but then not lust. He deals with there's only one cause for divorce. That's being what you ought in your marriage relationship. This being what you are in your relationship to your enemies and loving your enemies. That is, you love your enemies. Being righteous demands that I love my enemies. You see, it's not just about what I do when I'm inside this building. It's not just about making sure I'm offering service to God. It's about how we're living each and every day of our lives. It's about us not being focused on the physical, but instead focusing on the spiritual and focusing on eternity. Being righteous means that I'm not worrying about everything in my daily life. But I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all those things will be added to me. Being right, this righteousness means that I'm living by the golden rule. That's what the righteousness in the kingdom is demanding. And so much the more as we have seen in this lesson this evening. As we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. That's what's demanded by citizens in the kingdom. They're the kind of people that are being what they ought in their marriage relationships. They're the kind of people that love their enemies. The person that's focused on the phys- not focused on the physical but the spiritual. The person that's not worrying about each and everything in their life. And the person that is living by the golden rule. That's what righteousness in the kingdom is about. But it might be that there's present this evening, one or more who may have never responded in obedience to the gospel. If you've never obeyed the gospel, you're not a citizen in that kingdom. But you can be. If you've heard the word of God, and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you're not willing to repent of your sins, to acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism. And when you've done that, you're a citizen in the kingdom. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but somewhere along the line you've not, you say, I've not lived as I should. I've not lived as righteous as, the, as it would be demanded as a citizen of the kingdom. If it's a sin of a private nature, take it to the Lord privately in prayer. But if of a public nature, we will pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. But no matter what your need is, if we could assist you in any way, would you not come forward us together we stand and as we sing?